cool LA dad. I said it's my first raid. They just laughed. Picked up B from the Magic Castle. They hit up LAX and got in, no hassle. We left there when we hit up center space. Ron got his camera all up in my face. Tomorrow morning, I'm gonna be on Cobra Snake, making out with a chick that my girlfriend hates. We're back with another episode of Date with the Night, and today's guest is the iconic photographer who really defined the Indie Sleaze era in early aughts, Mark Hunter, a.k.a. The Cobra Snake. Welcome. How are you? Oh, man, this is so special. I love everything you've been doing immortalizing the Indie Sleaze era. Thank you so much. That means a lot, especially since I grew up visiting your website and checking out all your photographs from the weekend's parties and getting style inspiration from them. You're obviously a key figure of this period, and your photography is having a big renaissance, which I love. What has the past couple of months been like for you? It's been a true whirlwind. I don't know if they call it serendipitous or what, but you know, I've been working on my coffee table book that's coming out with Rizzoli all through almost the past five years, and we were planning on releasing it before you know the pandemic, but then we decided let's wait and you know wait till things go back to normal. And then this whole resurgence of indie sleaze happened and it couldn't be better timing. You know, there's a whole new renewed interest in my photography and the style and indie sleaze, but also just the Y2K aesthetic is really, really special to me. And it warms my heart that so many people are, you know, reaching out. I'm working on tons of fun photography projects, shooting parties again. It's starting to really feel like 2007 again. I love that. No, it's really phenomenal photography. And I love that it's just so fun and really express the sense of living in the moment. And you've been called the Instagram before Instagram. How did your photography journey start? And when did you realize that you cornered this niche market? Yeah. So, you know, when I grew up, I'm from LA and basically grew up in Hollywood. And so reading the magazines, looking at all the sort of fashion. And I I was a kid in the 90s. So it was the rock and roll era, the grunge, the, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and listening to this, this rock music formed me as a young kid. Then in high school, I wanted to be in a band, but I sucked. Like I had no rhythm. I tried to play the bass. I learned like so many songs, but not the right way, like with tablature. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. But I really never got anywhere with that. Then in high school, you had an elective class, which you could pick from. And I was like, oh, I'll try photography and really fell in love with it and truly learned the traditional way of like how to develop my own film, print black and white, be in the dark room, adjusting everything, contrast filters, blah, blah, blah. And really just fell in love with the whole art of developing images and composition and, and whatnot. And at the same time, also was obsessed with indie music. And this is 2002, 2003. Even as a teenager would go to a lot of concerts, whether it was at venues like the Troubadour or the Roxy or even the El Rey. And these were places that I paid to go. I was so excited to see these bands. I learned about them through like the LA Weekly, which was like our local free newspaper. And I was like, what better way to contribute to this culture than maybe take a few photos of the bands? What are some key points to photographing nightlife successfully? Yeah, well, again, you know, back to these concerts and it kind of all like paints into this picture is I would go to these shows and I was equally impressed with the audience as well as the performance. And so I didn't want to just focus on, you know, the band that was performing that night. I turned my camera on the crowd. And I think that's what made the site so interesting and also so 
personal and involved. The fact that you could find your photo next to the Yaya Yaz performance or you know, whatever band it happened to be, you were in the same gallery and treated the same through the, the images. There was no importance on any of the said images. You are sort of like just splashed into these settings of chaos and there's people dancing and spilling drinks on each other and bumping into you. And it's almost like an overwhelming experience. And that's what I sort of love. I basically said I would run around like a chicken with its head cut off <laughs> and just take as many photos as I could. And one of the things when it comes to shooting nightlife, especially for me, is I, I really don't like asking people to take their photo. It really ruins the moment and interrupts what they were doing. And so if you're dancing, I'm not going to tap you on the shoulder and say, is it okay if I take your photo? I'm going to snap that photo and that's going to be the magical moment that I captured. I really just like to organically sort of document what's happening through the night. That's interesting to me because we've come off this last decade where everything feels a little bit more planned, uh, especially on social media and Instagram. And I think that this is like a really, really great type of photography that I hope to see more of in the mainstream. Well, yeah, it's, it's super refreshing. There's a lot that's been going on. And the fact that like Euphoria is one of the biggest shows out there is again, like something that wins for the indie scene. You know, it's uh, it's showing non-traditional people living this kind of crazy lifestyle. And, and it's, it's a huge hit. When you're talking about what's happened over the past years is I also blame the phone, not only for like what you can do on the phone, but the way that you have to take photos with your phone. You know, you have to stand still, otherwise you're blurry. And so that's where the digital SLR and these sort of professional cameras that were synonymous with the nightlife photography really excel in that it's that flash that really sort of captures the, the moment. You can't get that with your phone. I'm always sort of thinking about when this era kind of shifted. And there's a lot of things that point to that, like Lizzie Goodman's Meet Me in the Bathroom. She talks about the Strokes making it to Madison Square Garden in 2011. And these bands that were kind of underground at one point had now made it. And I think in regards to photography, I agree that there was this shift around 2012, 2013, where people wanted to take their own photographs. Then everyone had this nice camera on their phone. And that's when some of this party photography kind of went away for a while. What's your personal timeline of this era? And when did it die out in your opinion? And why do you think that was? Well, so the funny thing is that, you know, when I started shooting at the clubs in, you know, the early 2000s, 2003 and four, people didn't like it. You know, they weren't used to a cameraman at these dark bars in Hollywood. And it was basically like swimming upstream. You know, I was getting yelled at or, you know, people would try to like, you know, block my camera with their hand or it was an aggressive sort of battle that I had to fight. But I knew, I knew in my head, I'm like, this is important. I want to document these people and, and they're going to realize and be happy that I was here for this. You know, it took some time, but then it, it basically like flipped on its head. And through 2005, six, seven, eight, I was like embraced like you wouldn't believe in it. I was like truly like a rock star traveling around either with DJs or bands or pop stars documenting and even just being flown, you know, just by myself to host a party in some city I'd never been to. And, you know, it was so special to me to get to meet, you know, all these people over the years and just the excitement that was created through this sort of community that was such a like-minded force. It's like everybody listened to the same music and dressed 
a similar way and liked the same movies and you really felt like it was a community. When social media started really taking over and you know everyone was just going to the concert to film it themselves on their phone and not really like living for the moment, I didn't feel as inspired to keep shooting. And I sort of just had been doing it for almost 15 years and was like, you know, I'll take a little bit of, of a break. When I first started going to concerts in 2003 and 2004, I used to sneak my camera in and it was just like a one or two megapixel shitty camera, point and shoot digital camera, which is having a renaissance as well right now. I wasn't on my camera all night, but I was taking photos. And I remember security took my camera quite a few times and they deleted my photos. Did this ever happen to you? Oh, I had so many experiences like that. As I said, like I would pay to go to these shows. And so I would be the fan waiting in line before the concert opened up, try to sneak to the front. Sort of ingenious thing I, I thought of was, all right, I'm going to take some photos of the band. And then if anyone's angry, I'm going to ask if they want a photo. And so the people around me, I photographed and then they were like, oh, how do we see these photos? And then, you know, I, I created the website at that point. And they were just so excited that, oh, I'm actually sharing the photos. It wasn't like I was hoarding them for myself. Like the point was that the photos could be alive online and that you could relive your night. Oh man, guess what I just found? I was going through and, you know, people have been like, did you ever shoot any video back then? You know, I was really focused on photos, but I found somehow my computer organized videos and I have epic footage of all the bands from back then shot on my shitty little point and shoot digital camera. But some of the audio is really good. And just the footage looks so real because it's it's as authentic as it can be being like in the front row. So I can't wait to share some of that with you because I think your audience would really eat that up. I really look forward to seeing that. It's funny to think that our cameras were confiscated and we had to sneak them in because now some people are literally watching the entire show through their phone. Do you think that if party photographers make a big comeback, would that free people up to live more in the moment? Yeah, I mean, we would need a, a serious army of, of party photographers. It's unfortunate how you know the phone has just become sort of glued to our hands. But I think the main thing is that if you can convince people not only that they're going to enjoy it more, but that they'll have a souvenir to look back on that was you know shot by a professional could work. I actually don't mind the idea of like them locking up the phones and either like a purse that you hold onto, but you can't play with your phone during the show. They've done that at some events here. Trying to bring it back to that early 2000s vibes where you're almost forced to interact with people. The the phone's been like such a weird enabler of socializing, but also, you know, we lack in, in social interaction because of the phone. And it's not just one age group either. I'm not throwing shots at any sort of age group in particular. It's across everybody. One of Mitski's recent concerts was trending on TikTok and people were saying the vibes were off, but some of the reasoning was because tall people were standing at the front. Do you have any sort of That's, like concert yeah. etiquette you adhere to? <laughs> That's funny. I mean, luckily I'm not the tallest dude out there. So that's never really been a problem. There are these diehard fans that literally will camp outside and like they deserve to be in the front. They're that passionate. But being in the second row and being the photographer, like you you should have pretty much free reign. Obviously, it's nice to politely ask to, to sneak through. Now that I have access, I can shoot from the side of the stage or a lot of time there's a photo pit, which is just reserved for the photographers. But one of the cool sort of almost famous moments for me was that 
you know, I would shoot these shows and I, I vividly remember like a Yaya yeah, Yaya yeah show at the Troubadour. And again, like I paid for my ticket, I, I snuck my camera in and I got these epic shots. And this is back in the day of like message boards. And so some fan that I gave my card to reposted all my photos of the band on the message board. And a day later, I get an email from the band being like, we love your photography and like, we'd love you to come document the behind the scenes of our music video we're filming in LA. And I'm like, is this real? And this is a time when, you know, there weren't a lot of fake impersonating scammers and catfish, but I was like, wait, I'm their number one fan or up there. And now they're coming to me asking if I could photograph them. My mind was blown. And then this just started happening more and more and more. Anything that I was like obsessed with, somehow they also respected me as uh, and what I was doing. And then we embraced each other. Yeah, I remember this part in Lizzie Goodman's Meet Me in the Bathroom where bloggers were having similar experiences to what you just described, where they generated enough interest online that major publications and artists would reach out to give them opportunities and passionate individuals could create something with no intention of fame or fortune and chart a career for themselves in arts and entertainment in a way that had previously never been seen before. Yeah. Well, and it was super disruptive. You know, the fact that I just said, all right, I'm going to make a blog and post my photos for free and not watermark anything and just see what happens versus, oh, I really want to shoot for the one photo that ends up in Rolling Stone every month. That just wasn't what I was excited by. And then lo and behold, you know, my photos ended up in you know, Rolling Stone, Spin, and et cetera. Also, one of the main places, you know, the LA Weekly, where I found out about a lot of these shows, I ended up having a weekly column in the newspaper. And it was just like, all these dreams were coming true. And I was like, how is this? How is this my life? It, I would need to see these Yaya yeah, Yaz yeah, photos. I don't think I've seen them before. So you have to send them to me at some point because I would love to look at those. You were at part of these weekly parties at Cinespace on a Tuesday, correct? Yes. And hundreds of people would show up. What was the best part of those events and what was the goal? Well, you know, that was a, a party that started many, many years ago with Steve Aoki and Frankie Chan and also Them Jeans, who's got an epic podcast called how long gone. The funny thing about that night is one, it's a Tuesday. And two, you never really knew what you would expect. It always said like, and secret guests. And that was sort of what the magic sauce was when it came to throwing that party, that you really had to show up. There was no social media to like tell you if the night was cool. We had an open bar from 10 to 11, which really inspired people to have fun. Some years was sponsored by Sparks, which was a controversial energy drink, alcohol beverage. There was a stage for bands to perform. There was a place for DJs to play. And it was this harmony that if you wanted to see the band, you went to the back room. If you wanted to just dance, you could stay in the front room. And then the crowds would mix and you would get this really unique group of people that could party on a Tuesday night. And yeah, the party, you know, it was, was legendary. It had pretty much every band perform that was relevant at the time. Everyone started their DJ career there. And for me, I never even really looked at the flyer. I just knew I'll be there every Tuesday taking photos. It was always a surprise. Frankie Chan and Steve Aoki had competing parties at one point too, which sounds totally. kind of exciting. It, it made us both better having to compete for the artists and and make the parties even more exciting. And I love that there, it was also a mixture of 
just party goers and celebrities. Like you said, you never knew who was going to show up. And Lindsay Lohan might be there DJing with Steve Aoki. You have so many great photographs of Lindsay at these parties and, and Steve DJing. What's the most memorable party or event you photographed? That's so hard. Speaking on the topic of Cinespace, like there was a night that everyone reminisces on where Daft Punk was DJing and they're without their masks and it's the whole Ed Banger crew, which was like at the height of their buzz and Justice is there and Medi is there. It was just alive. You left covered in sweat. That's always a good sign of a party. That night's always been special to me. And then in Paris, I always think back to this, they called it a demolition party. And it was like a really grand old hotel, you know, with chandeliers and mirrors everywhere and looked like very Marie Antoinette. And they were tearing the building down. So they threw a party saying you could just trash the place. And so they had sledgehammers and axes and all types of weapons, basically, and let a bunch of drunk people run through this event, just like breaking everything. And, you know, people were getting injured and like falling down the stairs and got some really great photos that night. I love that. Do you think there will be a renewed surge of parties as a response to COVID, like the ones from that era? Hell yeah. It's happening already. In a previous podcast, It Girl Theory, we talked about uh, spitting in each other's mouths and you know, just the idea that that in COVID would be so inappropriate, but it's fully back. Like I was shooting in New York and it was literally happening. You know, I wasn't even trying to make that happen. And I look over and, you know, two girls are spitting in each other's mouth. I'm like, oh, it's really, it's, it's truly, you know, what do they say? It's feeling like Christmas again. But, you know, for me, it's feeling like 2007. So why do you think we're seeing people embracing and aestheticizing the hipster 2000s and early 2010s again? Well, I mean, off the top, the freedom of expression is so cool. From the American Apparel ads that featured non-traditional models, you had all types of guys and girls modeling there, all races, all sizes. It was very ahead of the time. Again, with the idea of like euphoria and it's cool to look sloppy, it's making a big comeback where you don't give a fuck and you don't care as much. And that's super important from like the brainwashing that, you know, social media has given us into being all filtered and, you know, face tuned and all that stuff to, to break it down, to be authentic and to just live your truth and be yourself. That's such a cool concept. I do think it makes sense as it contrasts to what's been the dominant trend of the last decade with seven step contouring, 10 step skincare and minimalist clean girl aesthetics and and filters. There's all these rules and a lot of the style from this time, the makeup was minimal or messy and there wasn't really face tuning per se. The flash of the camera from those digital point and shoots was about the only thing that kind of would flood you with light to mask imperfections. So yeah, and it was a DIY culture, you know, and it was also just like you could wear whatever you had. And that's like what's been so cool looking at the curation you're doing on Indie Sleaze, just seeing some of these outfits. And it's wild because it would be whatever you found in your closet or at a thrift store that day, and you just wore it straight to the club. People often criticize this era because it, there are excessive depictions of alcohol and drug use. But was it worse than any other eras like party culture, especially you've mentioned euphoria, and that arguably documents a more turbulent depiction of modern young adult life? Yeah, no, I mean, everyone always tries to like dissect and pick apart and look at all the negatives of time. But yeah, it truly was no different. Obviously, I I'm, was born in 85, so I don't really know much 
from that that era, but from what you see in Studio 54 days, and that was 10 times crazier, you know, like everyone always tries to see like something negative where like I'm more of like a silver linings positive bro. Do you think that people were hedonistic as a response to a post 9-11 world during this time? Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely played a role. Like the fact that that was like such a tragedy and, you know, you would just reflect on yourself and you're like, you got to live for the moment. Who knows what could happen next? And then also just the political climate going into the Obama years, everyone was happy and positive. And it was like a time to not take things for granted and also just like live your truth. And it was when the hipsters was like on top. It's weird to think back when the the hipster was the coolest thing, you know, when these bands were on the top of their game. You know, when you talk about these parties and you talk about your photography and the people you meet, what are some places you were surprised to see embracing this subculture? Yeah, I mean, South America was was big, you know, Brazil and Argentina, Mexico City, Australia. The cool thing is that all these places had sort of their own version of stuff going on. And like, so for Australia, there was Modular Records and like Wolf Mother and Cut Copy and all these Australian legends. And then in Canada, there was like Crystal Castles. And I mean, you probably know better than me, you're like, the music guru encyclopedia <laughs> Andy Slees. <laughs> Thanks. But you know what I mean? Like so each each of these places, Paris, you know, again was like the whole Ed Banger thing and like this whole energy was coming out of these places. But it was all sort of similar but different. I could see fashion trends, you know, when I travel that were like spreading and things were happening a bit faster now due to the internet and due to the images on the cobra snake. You know, people were digesting that and making it their own. And it was really cool to experience. Why do you think this era was so X-rated in its vibes? Oh, I mean, it's, I think it was just, you had freedom of expression. And so people would let loose. And obviously there's always people that, you know, strive for attention and they think maybe being extra salacious is going to make for a better photo or get more attention that way. The funny thing is also when you look back at this, I'm like, there was no real social media besides like MySpace. And Mm -hmm. so it's almost funny to think how these photos existed and, you know, that people were excited. I don't know to do what with these photos. Now it makes sense. You have Instagram, you would post them to your feed or whatever, put them on your story. But back then it was like, all right, cool. Here's some cool photos to look at, you know? Yeah, I also, I don't know where I read this. It was quite a while ago, but I read this article about how when Bush was president, he actually wanted to run a campaign that was going to focus on censorship and cracking down on vulgarity or what they deemed as like salacious in media. But then 9-11 happened and that kind of shifted the focus. And so I think that's kind of interesting that maybe to think of what it might have been if there had been more, it wasn't just on social media. It's like you had all those scary movies, the, the the parodies of all the horror films. Those movies are funny, but they're also very vulgar. They have a lot of crude jokes. And I don't know if we would have seen that per se, oh, yeah. if there had been that crackdown. And it- Yeah, there was a lot of toilet humor, you know, <laughs> uh, South Park and a lot of questionable movies that probably wouldn't be made if it was 2022. And then, you know, we talk about the Obama era when Obama was first elected. There were huge parties across Toronto and I imagine in the United States. So one of my earliest like real jobs was I was working for Shepard Ferry, who's like famously known for 
the Obey posters and then the Obama Hope poster. That poster was the iconic image of Obama that really was like spread around the world and such a heroic sort of like image. And when Shepard was spearheading like so much fundraising for the campaign and pushing forward to make it happen. And there was a live art installation that he was doing in San Francisco. And then just a huge crowd of people celebrating as Shepard's like wheat pasting, like a giant scale Obama poster and Z trips DJing. So that was my, my memory. I wonder if that would ever happen again, because some people were disappointed. They thought more things would change with Obama and it didn't necessarily happen the way that they had hoped. And, you know, we had the Occupy protests during that time as well and the G20 protests. And I just wonder if we'll ever have that same sort of uh, reaction to the election of a president. Yeah. I mean, people were super charged up for Bernie um, Mm -hmm. and that was like a whole movement. And But yeah, let's see. I mean... I think it's important for people to be involved in politics and voice their opinion and, and get that, get out there, you know? How would you describe the style of this time? Oof. Well, I mean, the, the easiest thing to paint a picture was like half your outfit was from American Apparel, half your outfit was from the thrift store. There was almost like this uniform, especially in the early days, it was skinny jeans and tights and tighter fitting clothes for guys and and girls. The funny thing is that I look at some of the t-shirts I used to wear back then and I'm pretty much the same size, but I'm like, man, these are tiny shirts. Um, And now, you know, the trend is to wear like an oversized. It's funny for me uh, revisiting some of the wardrobe, lots of neon, fun accessories. Also like something that I really like feel proud of, the one inch pin Back in the day, you know, bands would make these like one inch pin that you would wear in your jacket and you rep like your favorite bands. And so I started pressing my own pins that said the Cobra Snake. The amount of people I got wearing those and then photographing them wearing them, it was like so cool to me because I was like, yeah, people are like celebrating the Cobra Snake and like repping it next to their Rilo Kylie pin and their Strokes pin. And I'm like part of the equation. Yeah, sometimes I get tagged and stuff and I'll add it to my story. People showing off their pins and specifically their Cobra Snake pins. I love that. Yes. I also really liked the style of Alison Mosshart and Kate Moss and her Glastonbury looks. You know, I was at Glastonbury uh, backstage in the mud standing next to Kate Moss smoking with Pete Doherty. Okay. You know. I'm like super jealous of you right now. <laughs> I would have been given anything to be there and just be part of that and standing in the mud with you. Um, (laughs) It was this shift from this minimalist vibe of Gen X style that kind of was throughout the 90s and the cyborg futurism of Y2K to this like McBling maximalist logo mania, which was part of the reason it makes sense there would be that renewed interest. We're kind of coming off of the peak of 90s and Y2K style right now. And it makes sense for a transition. Some people say the fashion was tacky. Do you feel this way? People would like ironically wear stuff. And so you might be in like a grandma sweater that's just not even cute or, um, (laughs) you know, some weird prom dress that you found at a thrift store. So there's definitely like some cringe fashion, but that's for every era. There's no perfect fashion moment. You know, you have people wearing the jeans with the skirt over the jeans and it's cute to see like what's getting uh, repurposed in in modern fashion. How would you describe your own personal style? Personally, I I can't really keep up with what's going on in fashion. So, 
I sort of just wear what I like and I dress for comfort, I always say. The nice thing is that I was able to, you know, with the help of like Ruka back in the day, I, I had a whole sort of early merch concept where every month I released a different shirt. And so those Cobra Snake shirts became like my uniform every month. And it was like my goal to wear them as many days as I could just to sort of like rep my brand and, you know, give them to cool people. And, you know, I've evolved to wearing like tons of Hawaiian shirts, which I just, again, feel like I'm on vacation every day. Been rocking a ton of like Ed Hardy and Chrome Hearts. There was a party we did that the heyday of Ed Hardy, we had a sign that said no Ed Hardy. And you weren't allowed into the party if you were wearing Ed Hardy. <laughs> so I think there's some some irony in that. Again, like, you know, it's hard, they say, keeping up with the Joneses. I just don't have the energy to always be knowing what's cool and what's next. So just wearing what I like and everything sort of evolves around that. And so I was big into tie-dye for many years and tie-dye comes in and out of fashion and I'm always wearing it. So, you know, I catch it and ride the wave. I love that. And I love your style. And actually, this year for the Met Gala, the theme is Gilded Glamour. And Anna Winter is hoping to see lots of gold. Do you think we'll see anyone wearing gold lame, hearkening back to American apparel? Yes. And- if they should, they, I would love to see somebody in like a gold lame bodysuit with Jeremy Scott winged Adidas in, in gold. Something that would throw back to this time and style icons like Corey Kennedy, who I would see on your website, by the way, and who you've mentioned in interviews that whenever you'd post a photo of her to your website, you'd notice an increase in traffic. People loved her and she had the makings of a natural it girl. And it's not so much of a natural phenomenon these days, I find. There's a lot of strategic campaigns behind the person that is made into a it girl. Why do you think that is? I think that people see there's money there. And, you know, it's this influence that we've all become accustomed to. It's how you're advertised to. And so brands from fashion to technology to everything are are realizing if we get the right people wearing our product or repping what we do, it's going to translate into sales. And so, yeah, that was like very, very early influencer. You know, back then it would be like we would get sent to some gifting suite. That was like the traditional way of doing things. You weren't getting packages sent to your house like it is where they do these unboxings. And then they just hope you would wear it and like tell your friends. That was like as far as it could go. But now with uh, social media, it's a whole another game. What do you think makes an it girl in your opinion? And what was it about Corey that had that it girl factor? I mean, one is it's her eyes. There's a thing called like Sam Paku or something. I'm probably yeah. saying it wrong. But um, the whites of her eyes were just so intriguing. And basically, like, you saw those photos of her and you were, like, drawn in. And there was just something about her that was that you couldn't really, like, put your finger on. But then, you know, it was her personal style and aesthetic that she basically, at a very young age, was reading every fashion magazine, getting the import copies of French Vogue, and just, like, soaking up all that like a sponge. And then you know, translating that in her daily fashion. And so she'd be in like Chanel ballet flats, but with something from the thrift store. And it just was like that high low and the sort of not giving a fuck attitude that she'd be like in a trash can or like, you know, climbing over a fence or like doing just whatever it was, but with like luxury mixed with the thrift. And then also sort of the adventures that we had and the people that she was around was just like, it was mind blowing. And 
one of my early tactics to get photos of celebrities was to say, oh, can my friend get a photo with you? Now that's like very common, obviously, with like selfies. But back then, instead of just like straight up asking, you know, whoever it was, I'd throw Corey in the mix and then how could they say no to her? So we have all these photos of her next to like the celebrities of the time. And it just helped elevate everything that was going on. She had edgy style. It was also like not super revealing. It was actually really conservative and she like rarely like showed off too much. People thought she was related to like the Kennedys because I think of one of your posts. Yes. Well, that was what was so cool about the internet back then is there was really no way to Google things. And so I think, yeah, one of the titles of the gallery was like JFK, Corey Kennedy or something like that. And people were like, she related to the Kennedys? The Again, the things that we were invited to or snuck into, there's photos of her with Paris Hilton one night and then Kim Kardashian and Lindsay Lohan. It's like, she basically made them look cool in those images. And very early on in her career, ended up on the cover of Nylon and Jalouse. At a very young age, it was like a dream, you know, that these things were happening. Yeah. And you guys were so popular. Like you even had a reference in, was it Law and Order? There was like an episode where someone commits a murder or something. It's not, it's not the person that was like parodying you, but there was a parody of, of you as yes, a party there photographer. A, there was a party photographer called snakeboy.net, um, <laughs> which I, I loved. And um, yeah. And then Corey and I were asked to be in the revival of 90210 I remember um, that playing playing ourselves and it was it was cool to see how we could like sort of splash into mainstream culture. Corey was in a ton of great campaigns for all different brands and so yeah, it was it was really special. What do you think is like the difference between the first coming of the hipster indie sleaze era and now? I mean, now we are living in a a time of censorship and cancel culture and Everything on social media, like you can't post anything too crazy, it's going to get reported. So I think that that's in the back of everyone's head. So they're going to have sort of their guard up to a degree. But then I'm finding that there's people that just completely detest all of that and want to live like it's 2007 and are currently doing that. You know, I've been shooting events in LA and New York primarily. You feel like you're at a party again. We're also seeing this resurgence of not only just the aesthetics and the parties and people wanting to have those similar moments captured in your photography, but we're seeing a resurgence of old tech or vintage tech, digital point-and-shoot cameras, wired headphones, TVs with built-in VHS players, and iPods, like specifically iPods. Like, What's one vintage tech item you'd like to see brought back? Well, I'm I'm pretty stoked on the the point and shoots. I think that's so fun, and again, it gives you an opportunity to live in the moment a little bit more because you shoot it, and then it's not like you can do much else but review the photo. I think like the vinyl revival is pretty cool. Anything that's analog is important because it's funny. Like Spotify goes down for a day, or you lose your password, and you have no music anymore. Yeah. And you know, having a physical collection of some sort or an iPod that still works is like gold. I didn't own one of these, but the mini disc player, I don't know if you remember those. Like totally. they were 
Yeah, they were from the 90s. Like, they came out in 1992, but people didn't really start using them or talking about them until, like, a decade later. I think it was, like, Japan and Europe had kind of caught on, but it didn't didn't come across North America until the 2000s. And we also talked about the Zune, I remember, briefly over yes. um, our DMs. It was a very interesting device. Like, I had only a few friends that had one and it was really good it just kind of got surpassed by apple products because yeah you know that you know that was i think the first device that could play video Mm -hmm. uh, as well as mp3s and it had a radio which is funny i think radio is also just a cool thing that you had to listen to it at that moment i think things have changed so much where we all expect everything on demand and when we want it and there's a charm to you know watching it at a certain time or having to tune in to something And some people refer to this era as like a nostalgic era, already looking back that there wasn't anything new with all these nods to the 70s and 80s. And this was even kind of talked about in Digitalism's Anything New or Metrics Dead Disco. What do you think about this? Like, do you feel that way? Or do you feel like just because of the way that social media was, it was this new territory that that's not really a fair criticism? Yeah, I mean, every generation is going to reference different things. And I mean, I think if anything, now is like probably the worst where it feels like everything has been done before and there's not as much new stuff. But again, in 20 years from now, we'll be like, wow, some of those fashion designers were ahead of the time or the music that was happening then was cool. And now we live on Mars. There is some references to 70s and 80s in the early 2000s, but then it was like a new breed of you know, this electroclash scene and fluorescent stuff was fresh. And there was a lot that blog house. Yeah. Blog house. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not mad. Same here. Now I want to talk to you about film for a second. I really loved your uh, interview in Paper Mag with Meg Superstar Princess. I love her too. You know, you mentioned that Wes Anderson films were like super popular amongst hipsters. Why do you think those films appeal to hipsters? I mean, it was sort of like glamorizing and romanticizing ultimate hipster lifestyle. You know, you wanted to be a character in Rushmore or Tenenbaums. I mean, yeah. I remember the, you know, the, the whole family's wearing the Adidas tracksuits. And it's like, I lived in tracksuits after that. I was like, this is so cool. But, you know, it was just stylistically like appealing. The soundtracks were always like on point. You know, it was a diverse cast of characters. And it's unfortunate, but there's definitely not as many indie films coming out of a big, big note or big release now. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was a, quite a heyday of, of movies. I think for anyone that was into, you know, has an artistic eye like you do, where you are a photographer or you're an artist or a graphic designer, the design and all of those films is just really, really impressive. The amount of detail that goes into that, as well as like the characterizations, the niche interests that they're into. Yes. What was one of your personal favorites? Everyone always like loved Napoleon Dynamite. And that's just funny to me because... I remember, again, I'm privy because I lived in LA. I would go to like film screenings before movies would be released. And I got to see that in an early screening. And I was like, this is kind of out there. And then it was like very goofy and definitely alternative. But one of my favorite movies kind of from that same era, I was like, I always go back to it's The Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just a huge fan of the Coen brothers. And there's just something about about that movie that I could watch it anytime, multiple times. The characters are great and shot in in and around LA. In terms of Wes Anderson, again, like 
I'd bring up Rushmore. People would always say when I was like a young, like go-getter kid that I reminded them of Jason Schwartzman and the little idiosyncrasies and things that he would do were, was so funny. And then all of those movies are great and you can watch those countless times. I always really loved the Royal Tenenbaums, like you mentioned, and there was a lot of movies like the Vincent Gallo films and like Harmony Corinne films, I remember, were very popular, at least within like hipster crowds. Like those were also sort of some films that yes, really and, seemed and to- the, And Greg Araki films like Doom yes. Generation and Nowhere. Also, it's a little bit earlier, but there was some pretty- crazy movies like this one called palindromes i don't know if you ever yes yeah that's todd solins yes yes that's a really intense one and you know i would be at the art house theaters like every weekend seeing those movies again i was lucky to like get to see them in the theater like when they first aired i haven't watched a lot of them for like 20 years i gotta you know catch up on some of those classics yeah, those films are very, very strange, but I, I love them. Palindrome specifically was one. I remember my brother showed that to me. He's like, you got to watch this. And I was like, I don't know what just happened, but that's cool. <laughs> oh, and, I want to see more stuff like this. Uh, and our, our Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky, and like yeah. Pie and Requiem for a Dream. And yeah, there was some heavy movies back then. What are some misconceptions about this time for you? Well, I mean, you know, everyone was like, oh, it's all about just partying, but then they're not realizing that through those parties, it inspired tons of musicians and fashion designers and stuff to go on to do like great things. And so I remember the early days where like Katy Perry was just showing up to these parties and she wasn't known as Katy Perry like she is today. And it was, you know, that inspiration that she found in those nights and even in some of her song lyrics, you know, were references to her nights out partying. So it was definitely like a, a great place for inspiration and creativity, early fashion designers, you know, were around back then. And again, inspired by the culture. It was always fun seeing Kanye, you know, at Paris Fashion Week and stuff with a point and shoot. He had a Leica, you know, he would be like shooting the runway. And it was like his interest in fashion then evolved into Yeezy, which is like a huge brand. So I think there was so much people could learn from the time. And it was really like what you did with that made the difference. I love that you mentioned Katy Perry because anytime I post a picture of her, people get angry. I get messages where they're like, she wasn't part of this. Why are you posting her? And I'm like, okay, well, you don't know how much she was connected to a lot of these parties that were going on in LA and how that was, you know, before she was even famous or even Gaga, you know, they were not not part of this. They very yeah. much had their stakes in it and were creatively influenced by it. What's one track like Indie Sleaze Anthem that defines the era for you? I mean, that's tricky. I mean, it's more like just the bands mm -hmm. listening to the strokes and the yeah, yeahs, and then obviously, like Justice. Oh, that's so hard. It's hard. It's a really, I don't even like being asked this question. It's like, <laughs> what's your favorite movie? It's like, it's impossible to. <laughs> what, would, what would you say? It might be a yeah, yeah, yeah song for me, potentially, or a metric song. Yes. I was listening to Metric the other day and it brings back so many memories. The thing is that I get like um, some weird like spark in my brain when I listen to these songs because I remember bopping around when I was 18, 19 years old in the front row at these shows and I'm like now 36 and I'm like, oh, this was fun. This was real energy. And I, I, I can like trigger, you know, listening to Arcade Fire and I'm like, this brings back something and it really, really like uh, warms my heart. Yeah, Arcade Fire, Rebellion, Lies. Whenever I hear that song, it just reminds me of being like 
first year of high school and I, I can't even almost listen to it. It's like, I love that I song. I have footage shot on my little two megapixel camera of Arcade Fire. I was in the photo pit at, at some festival and they are going crazy bashing on the instruments and hitting the different things and climbing up the scaffolding. And I'm watching this footage and I'm like brought to tears just thinking of how epic it was. And, you know, now he said he like retired from doing the band. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe he'll come back. It's probably some marketing, marketing. Yeah. A year from now, they'll be on tour again or something. The amount of times uh, uh, LCD sound system said they're done and have come back. Yes, it felt like an indie sleaze news headline when LCD Sound System had a show in New York this past winter and it was linked to an outbreak in COVID cases. It felt very of the moment. Yes. Are there any photographers you're currently enjoying? Well, I love uh, Petra Collins. She's, She's from Canada. Yes, love her too. Hometown hero. Man, I mean, I, I, I'm really stoked that uh, my good friend Ron started, you know, Ron Snake. He's posting a lot of the photos that he shot back in the 2000s. That's been fun. Uh, Arnold Daniel, Daniel Arnold. He's great. He's New York based. Everyone's going to get mad at me if I don't mention them. But <laughs> I think there's a lot of talented people out there. And I think that social media has helped a lot with access and you can get in touch with people through DMs and make things happen. And and that's really special. It wasn't so easy back then. But funny enough, you know, when you were mentioning some of these bands, I'm like, man, Emily from Metric and I were close back in the day. Again, I was a huge fan. But then like we had fun outside of the concerts and I need to send you some photos of her. I was on tour with The Kills, which is, you know, oh Allison's God. band. That's so cool, with, yeah. With Steve Aoki in like Tokyo. I think on that trip was also like with... Marcy from the Von Bondies and James Eha from Smashing Pumpkins. My archive is like super ripe and like perfect for the Indie Sleeves page. And I can't wait to start sharing more stuff with you. I've just been like so slammed trying to get the book finished. And then I want to be like strategic in how we post some stuff because I think it'll help gain some excitement around, you know, the book that comes out in the spring. Of course. And what was it like putting your book together? laborious and not that fun. <laughs> the reality of, of book publishing is not as glamorous as it may seem, mm-hmm. but it had nothing to do with Rizzoli. It's more just like in order to publish a book efficiently, you have to have releases from everybody. So going back and retroactively trying to contact people that I haven't talked to for a while was challenging, but all in all was like a positive response and 95% of people all gave their permission for the book. But even just, you know, you only have so many pages and only so many photos and it's like, how do you choose? And then it just got, it's got overwhelming, you could say. So one of the sort of remedies that I've come up with, I'm redesigning and going to relaunch the Cobra Snake archive, which is close to half a million photos. So with many, many Indie Sleaze moments. And that should hopefully go online in the next couple months and, you know, be a free for all for people to go back and relive and celebrate those times and, you know, repost the content and find your Cobra Snake photo in, in the archive. How did you narrow down your vast collection of photos? Like, I'm sure you have thousands. How did you go about selecting the ones that made it into your book? One is that I really wanted to focus on the years before social media took over, like in a big way. So I kind of cut off the edit at like 2009, 2010. And then I just really wanted to try to represent the culture as best as I could from my early start working with bands to, you know, DJs to fashion to art culture, a little bit of everything. 
And yeah, it was, it was definitely challenging, you know, also sort of just like confusing because it's like so many photos and then you're like, was this in the book? Did this make the cut? Did this get permission? Did this happen? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and yeah, until you like see it printed, you're like, oh, this is, this is what it is. I'm really stoked on it. And everyone that's got like a sneak peek at it's like loved it. You're getting an autograph copy. Thank you so much. And it's cool. Cause again, it's like a celebration of the time. It's a true time capsule at this point, looking at, you know, almost 20 years ago. I'm really stoked to, you know, have people see it, get inspired the stories that I hear nowadays from people that grew up looking at my blog, they've all gone on to like doing such cool things or, you know, opening a clothing store, starting a record label or, you know, a magazine, whatever it might be. They all like said they got their early inspiration from, you know, the blog, which is really means a lot. Yeah. So it's going to be out in late May. It's already available for pre-order and that's on Amazon and wherever you can buy books. And it will be having great distribution in the States, like at Urban Outfitters and Barnes and Noble. And I'll also plan to sell like kind of a limited signed version on my website, the Cobra Snake. And then I plan to do like a book tour come June. So we have tentative dates in LA, New York, London, and Paris. I'm, I'm hoping to get to Canada. I'm hoping that everything's opening up in a way that makes for, you know, fun celebration. No, that's a good release date, May, because it's going into summer and, you know, everyone's kind of outside. We're not stuck inside, <laughs> passing COVID to one another. So I think that'll allow for you to come to Canada. Well, you know, the funny the funny thing is one of the photos that's on the cover is of Steve Aoki, and it's from a party in Winnipeg. Yes. Winnipeg so, representation. We yes. need that. I would tour extensively through Canada even in the winter. And man, some of the best parties, honestly, back in the day. And creative people, you know, that's like, again, it was a, a lot of cool people came out of, of the scene in Canada. Well, I can't wait for your book to come out. And I can't wait for you to hopefully make it out here or I make it out over to your neck of the woods. Who knows? Well, I, I heard a rumor you're coming for the uh, Just Like Heaven Festival. But that's not fully solidified yet. They haven't fully given me the go ahead. But that is my hope. Fingers crossed. Keep your fingers crossed for me because I would love I that. Mean, I would love to that's go. A true, that's a true indie sleaze fest. Yes, it is. It is. So that would be really, really exciting. It's been so great to talk to you. Thank you again for coming on my podcast and filling me in on all the answers to questions I've been dying to ask you for years since I've been on your website. And I hope to get you on the pod again, maybe to talk about just film and music in general. I would be uh, honored to be a returning guest. And, you know, I, I love how thoughtful you are with these questions and you really... It's it's really good what you're doing for for the scene and uh, you know I appreciate you and and all the efforts that you're putting into keeping the indie sleaze alive. Thank you so much. And for listeners out there, you can go to it's pronounced Rizzoli Books. Yeah, it's Rizzoli Books um, or thecobrasnake.com. We'll have more information on the book at the Cobra Snake on Instagram. My link in bio goes straight to buying the book. So yeah, I appreciate your support because again, it's it's a different era of of book book selling and it's cool because it was charting on Amazon for a while. So they're off to seeing some good pre-orders and the more copies out there, the better. Yeah, I think people are going to be dying to get their hands on this. So goodbye for now. But hopefully, yeah, not the last time you'll be on this pod. We'll have you again on soon. See you later. See you later. See you later.